0: In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun.
1: Lightspeed wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so i it up and look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again?
0: Inspired! or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I'm excited to bring you an interview with podcaster Cody T. Havard, who hosts the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. He's a professor at the University of Memphis and uh, teaches a Disney honors course. We'll get into all of that in just a little bit, but I first wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the announcement a few weeks ago of who will be inducted as Disney Legends at the forthcoming D23 Expo. I am recording this, of course, prior to the Expo, so by the time that you listen to this, um, it will either be just around the corner or will have happened. Uh, but I certainly have some thoughts um, because it's a really nuanced and complicated topic. You might have listened to some episodes of Notably Disney in the past where uh, I had guest Aaron Wallace, who's a podcaster and author, come on to talk about folks who are uh, musicians or musical talent or connect who have connections to music, folks who have contributed majorly to the Disney universe in that sphere who should be named as Disney legends. And uh, we, I lo- love that. That was one of my favorite conversations because it allowed us to put our sorcerer's hats on and imagine who we think should be honored in that very momentous way. Uh, and, of course, uh, nobody on, those, on, on either of our lists uh, will be announced as Disney Legends. Um, there's very possible... Uh, the likelihood, I should say, there's a possibility that there might be a surprise Disney Legend announced that has happened in the past. Uh, think of when Johnny Depp garnered it seven years ago, um, and, and there have been some others as well. But point is, uh, Disney Legends are a very representative set of individuals in terms of how they have had how they've made contributions to the Walt Disney Company over its nearly 100-year history. You have everyone from Imagineers to designers to actors to producers, uh, artists, and everyone in between. And more recently, we've seen a shift with Disney Legends, where uh, there are more being announced at each uh, D23 expo. So certainly it's been three years since the last one, but this most recent group, which we'll dive into momentarily consists of 14 individuals. In the past, it has been fewer than that. Um, but we've also seen a very salient shift to more, uh, how should I put it, uh, apparent, visible, uh, in-the-media individuals, so in terms of actors and actresses, uh, more folks in, in that sphere who hold those roles, uh, being the folks who are getting honored. And, uh, you know, that... One could debate whether or not that's a good thing or not, Um, but what I really want to focus on is uh, a few interesting uh, themes that I've seen emerged, and ultimately how I have some uh, questions regarding how legends are being determined, and ultimately, when does someone become a legend? So most notably, you will recognize that four new legends consist of the voice artist's of Frozen and the Frozen franchise. So that's Christine, excuse me, Kristen, not Christine, Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel, Josh Gad, and Jonathan Groff. This is a trend that Disney has been engaging in with uh, prior sets of legends where uh, you will have folks who have some common ties together so in 2019, it was uh, folks who had connections to the new uh, live action, or should I say, uh, new interpretation of The Lion King. So that was John Favreau, James Earl Jones, and Hans Zimmer. Um, Iron Man also played a role from the standpoint of having John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. Garner Legends Awards. Um, ABC News was represented last time through Robin Roberts and Diane Sawyer. Um, And we've seen some of these examples where there's almost a a common thread across several legends. Uh, Very significantly, that happened about five, uh, excuse me, it was 11 years ago now with uh, five of the different Disney princesses, uh, voice artists uh, being recognized. So thematically, I think that's it is nice in terms of folks having a shared experience. uh, But that also raises the question, does everybody in that set group, so to speak, Deserve to be honored as Disney legends. And uh, it's certainly understandable if there are uh, certain degrees of, uh, I don't know, equal levels of contributions, but that's hard to measure. When I think about Frozen, I certainly appreciate how it has had a major impact on pop culture over the past decade. Um, same with the two stars of Blackish, Anthony Anderson and Tracy. Ellis Ross being recognized as Disney Legends too. Um, that that show was on for eight seasons um, was uh, certainly contributed to a, a number of conversations about racism and race relations in the United States um, under this uh, banner of a of an ABC comedy, uh, which had some uh, much deeper themes. So we're seeing and 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 another set of folks who have a common connection. You have Ellen Pompeo and Patrick Dempsey of Grey's Anatomy. Fame also being honored. So again, folks from three franchises for the company in different spaces, um, being recognized as Disney Legends. Now, my my question and my concern in some respects is when does someone become a legend? So, what I would argue is that these are these are still relatively newer faces, so to speak, in the Disney family. Right, they've contributed a lot over the past. Ten years in the case of Frozen and Blackish performers. Grey's Anatomy has been on for eighteen years, um, with Ellen Pompeo being on from the onset. But how do you how do you define when you are a legend, and and when you're still kind of up and coming, and and that's kind of a space of ambiguity for me. I'm not fully sure how I how I would say okay, this is the point in which you are are considered a legend. I guess I view it from the standpoint of in the earlier days of the Disney legends, so it started in 1987, you had folks like Fred McMurray, Julie Andrews, Dean Jones, Annette Funichello, folks who had been in the Disney sphere for 20, 30 plus years. Um, even, you know, even thinking of Walt you know, Walt's nine old men, folks who were with the company for several decades those folks being honored as legends. The longevity was there. The impact and, and uh, significance was certainly apparent because it wasn't necessarily where their contributions were limited to a certain point in time. We, we saw the fruits of their labor and all their products over the course of a number of years. The, the, the same can't fully be said of folks who have only been with the company for maybe 10 or 15 years that's what that's what is a question mark for me right i can't deny that an individual has uh, been massively impactful in a limited period and, and that does mean a lot right but when i hear the term legend that's that denotes this idea of well they they exist over a long period of time they've played a role in a variety of different projects and contributed in a in a multitude of ways and it's hard for me to be able to figure that out among folks who are relatively younger and more than that whose contributions to the company while significant might be limited to just a few projects now a ca- counter argument to that would be well think of julie andrews right when she got a disney legend her primary affiliation with disney was it was through one role as Mary Poppins, but think about how significant Mary Poppins was not only at the time when it debuted in 1964, but also several decades later when Julie Andrews was honored. With when we're thinking about Grey's Anatomy and Blackish and Frozen, of course, these are um, significant and, and mean a lot to people, and and I I can I can appreciate that, and I you know I I definitely. Uh, see the value in folks' artistry. But the time element continues to echo in the back of my mind. So without sounding like a broken record, it's not always is someone deserving of being a legend. Is it more of is now the right time to honor them When when we still don't know all the amazing things they could contribute in the many years to come? And very likely that will be the case, right? We probably will get a Frozen 3 announcement or some manifestation of other major frozen products um it's possible that anthony anderson and tracy ellis ross may contribute to uh to developing new shows for abc studios or or other parts of the walt disney company with ellen pompeo she continues to play a role on Grey's anatomy even though it's been reduced patrick dempsey uh well disenchanted is coming out so great marketing and uh hopefully patrick um still uh, finds some good work for Disney in the coming years. But that's the thing. When, I, when I'm thinking about Legend, I'm thinking that they have this very massive library over so many years behind them as opposed to in front of them. So that's, that's the question mark for me. And, and more than that, I'm thinking of, well, if folks um, along the lines of these eight individuals who are very accomplished actors and actresses are being honored, well, who's being left out? And for me, when I think about folks like Jim Cummings, the voice artist behind uh, Pooh and Tigger and Darkwing Duck and all of these Disney characters over several decades, the dozens of roles, so many contributions, not only on screen, but via consumer products and television and um, Gosh, so many different entities. I, I mean, that, it's disappointing that someone like him hasn't been honored. Same could be said for Tom Hanks, who I kind of suspect could be not could be honored as a surprise legend in in light of the uh, new interpretation of Pinocchio debuting. But Tom Hanks, it's it's not just voicing Woody, who ultimately is one of the most recognized Disney Pixar characters uh, of all time, um, but has many other contributions to Disney uh, via playing Walt Disney and Saving Mr. Banks, uh, this title role in Splash, which was the debut of Touchstone Pictures, and, and other roles as well. I'm even surprised that Harrison Ford, who played Indiana Jones and in Han Solo, has not been honored. He could be a, a surprise as well. I, I think that's uh, very possible. But even though those are by virtue of acquisitions— Uh, Harrison Ford has also contributed to some other uh, Disney projects over the years. But most significantly, I'm thinking about, you know, if you're recognizing the stars of Grey's Anatomy, who are wonderful individuals from what it seems like, well, how about Shonda Rhimes? Yes, she's broken apart from the Walt Disney Company over recent years, but her start, in in many ways at least uh, for many folks, was through Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. And how to get away with a murder? She's uh, a real titan in the industry and has been uh, just made such a significant impact across so many uh, different series and entities, Um, and that's been over the course of now uh, approaching two decades. So, um, I, I guess I feel like, well, if you're honoring Ellen and Patrick, where's Shonda in this? And there are other folks who I could name, and and certainly some. Uh, musicians, uh, as Aaron and I attended to in that episode, I would say you have composers like John Debney, uh, who's written scores for Disney for, gosh, 40 years, Uh, Michael Giacchino, who in the past 20 years has written scores for Disney films, uh, Pixar films in the parks, television series like Lost and Alias. I, I really think his time should be coming, too. So I'm not discounting the folks who are being honored now, but it's more of I guess there are so many other folks who rise to the surface and who ultimately in many spaces have contributed to the company for a longer period or in uh, more varied ways that that's why I'm I'm a little bit struck by those who are omitted. Uh, But there are some other folks who are being honored who I haven't mentioned so far. Chris Montan. Uh, with Walt Disney Records, or Walt Disney Music, I should say. Uh, He's been a player for several decades and extremely significant in overseeing a number of film soundtracks for the studio during its renaissance and uh, in subsequent periods. Um, Doris Hardoon, Disney Imagineer, uh, she's been featured in in various Disney documentaries um, and who has been with the parks, uh, with Walt Disney Imagineering for four decades as well. Again, think about longevity here and multitude of projects from Animal Kingdom to Epcot Center canceled theme park projects as well. Don Hahn interviewed him a couple of years ago when he was promoting the Howard documentary. Don is uh, an animator. He's a producer, an author. Can't forget that part. He's written several books, um, but his impact has been So profound, from telling Howard Ashman's story via that amazing documentary to working on The Lion King, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So many projects. So I'm obviously thrilled to see someone like him being honored. Uh, Bob Foster, who recently passed away, um, was one of the main people who helped uh, start uh, up the Florida project and found the land that would become Walt Disney World. Really uh, nice to see someone uh, in in that sphere, uh, and who's worked and worked for Disney in a, a variety of capacities, uh, be honored and, and very poignant too because of his recent passing. Along those same lines, uh, Chadwick Boseman, who played be- Black Panther in the um, that very hit 2018 film, um, reprising that role in a couple of the, in several of the Avengers films. Um, he was he started out uh, in Captain America: Civil War. Um, but, gosh, uh, he his his passing certainly uh, took um, a lot of people by surprise. Um, he was keeping uh, private his um, his illnesses, and um, you know Chadwick. You know, here's here's another question mark because again, his his projects were a limited in number and over a very finite period of time. But what an impact! Um, so I think you know. T- t- death and, and once and someone passing it it presents new questions in terms of how you look at someone's legacy uh, because we know there can't be any future products from them so that's um, it's uh, it's a, a very I think thoughtful choice and um, I think in many ways you know people will look at him in the same ways that folks looked at someone like James Dean who uh, only only starred in a few films but how well regarded they were and and how untimely his passing was. Um, another person to recognize is uh, Imagineer Rob T. Uh, Coltrin. Hope I'm saying his name right. He was responsible for uh, many projects for Disney, uh, including uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Radiator Springs Racers, Muppet Division 3D, and others. Um, so it, it's nice to see again a, a Disney Imagineer, someone who's worked for the company exclusively. Um, and, and, and very prominently over the course of this time be honored. So lots of things to be able to deconstruct there. All, all that to say, I am excited to hear folks' speeches and to see who, who might be the surprise legend if they in fact go in that direction. I I don't want to take anything away from the fact that folks who are being honored, um, in my opinion, some of them, I feel like it is a bit too early. but. I also am hopeful and confident that these folks who really do represent a variety of different divisions and spaces in the Walt Disney Company continue to produce work. We don't know. Obviously, we know with um, folks who have passed that that um, that will not be the case. But you know, for someone like you know Patrick Dempsey or um, Josh Gatt, like Adina Menzel, Tracy Ellis Ross, the list goes on. Right? I, it'd be, it would be. I really hope that they. Uh, find new outlets to engage in within the Walt Disney Company outside of the roles that made them stars. And I think it will be fascinating to see what the discourse is among Disney fans following the Expo and as we would approach the next Expo in, in terms of, well, based on who was not in the mix this year, who who should be and who could be, who will be named as Disney Legends. I I think it's a bit sad and frustrating that there's really no uh, publicly listed criteria in terms of uh, how legends are determined, um, who consists of that committee, but I I do imagine that it would be um, really fruitful if um, in time fans can play a role in in selecting a Disney legend. Uh, maybe there's like a a fans' choice, and this was. Uh, an idea encouraged uh, by uh, my best friend, who I think was really right on the money there in terms of well, you know, you have Disney, you know, putting out there in terms of who they see as a legend. Why not allocate one spot to like almost like a, a viewers' choice or fans' choice, so to speak? Um, that could become extremely complicated, and um, and yeah, popularity contest for sure, but. Um, you know, I think the fans will have spoken that there are a number of folks who have yet to be recognized. So there you go. The, that's my, my my hot takes on on Disney Legends. It's a complex topic. Y- you you have to debate about time versus impact because I feel like those are at uh, opposing ends of a continuum here in terms of what matters more and and and. I guess we'll see how it evolves in the coming years. So thanks for uh, entertaining my perspectives. And uh, now I'm going to transition it over to my interview with Cody T. Havard. Enjoy. Dr. Cody T. Havard is a professor of sports commerce and the coordinator of research for the Kemmins Wilson School of Hospitality and Resort Management at the University of Memphis. And his research covers a number of topics, including sports rivalries and fan culture. He's also the person behind the Being a Fan of Disney podcast, which recently, much like notably Disney, celebrated its 100th episode, uh, which we were just talking about. I am excited to discuss with him uh, as many manifestations of sharing insights about Disney, including research, teaching and podcasting. And it all seems to be uh, kind of woven together in a really cool way. Uh, as we were talking about before recording so uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast cody yeah
1: thank you for thank you for having me brad this is awesome um it's always nice to to get to talk to other disney fans and other people who are doing things like this so thank you
0: yeah absolutely well uh, as i often ask my guests uh, because much like superheroes, we all have origin stories, and many of us have longstanding connections to Disney. So I'm wondering, in your experience, what shaped your initial interests in Disney?
1: So, you know, I think you you grow up um in the United States and and you know who Disney is, you know what the company is. Um, and I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, is kind of when I was like, you know, in my I guess, prime uh, Disney age is, or I should say prime age of being uh, like kind of exposed and socialized into into new things like that. And so I grew up with, you know, I, I saw the Disney Renaissance, um, all of the movies that are, you know, people refer to as like some of the, the classics now. Um, Little Mermaid and everything. Those are the ones that really got me hooked in on everything. Um, And we had been to the parks. Um, We've been, I've been to Walt Disney World a handful of times. Those are the only parks we've, I've I've ever actually been to, but we would go sometimes with my family because we lived in Texas. And so it's, I don't, you know, 15 hour drive or whatever. So we'd pack up the car, leave in the middle of the night. Uh, My sister and I would sleep and We would wake up at 10 in the morning and we'd be in Florida and then all excited. And then you realize you still have like eight more hours to drive (laughs) because we're driving through the panhandle of Florida down to Orlando. Um, But then, you know, after a while, I didn't go to the parks for a long time and I'm not exactly sure when it was, but it was probably around 1990 or something or 91 is the last time that I went like kind of as at that age. Um, and then, you know, just being in high school and playing athletics and things, you never really have time and being in college, you don't really have time nor you really have the money. Um, the next time I actually went back to the parks and I, I'd have always been watching Disney stuff during that time. And, you know, had, I remember seeing toy story and I tell my students all the time how that what would, The way people, a lot of people talk about Star Wars um, and and that being like a brand new thing, that's what Toy Story was for me. I remember that I I loved Star Wars, but I remember having that experience when they showed Andy's room for the first time thinking this is completely different. And now, you know, I I think a lot of people who were born after that, um, that's what people are used to now. And so it's it it was I consider myself and everybody around my age lucky that that was an experience that we all had. Um, But the next time I went back to the parks was actually 2012 um, because I had a a, it was my second year at the University of Memphis. And we had a conference um, that was in Orlando. So my wife and I went uh, we were dating at the time, but she went with me to the conference and um, she had never been to Disney World. And so I was thinking, you know, trying to plan out what are all the things that she needs to do. We had two day park hopper tickets to go through the conference. And um, I said, you know, Magic Kingdom, obviously, you have to go to that because that's the castle kingdom. I love um, Hollywood Studios. I, I like I've always really liked Epcot. Figment has always been like my favorite character um and i had never been to animal kingdom so i said well i kind of had a plan of what we were going to do um and we went and it was at the end of october which i didn't really know but that's a pretty low attendance uh time anyway which was great and then that was also when superstorm superstorm sandy was hitting the east coast and so there was nobody at the parks. Um, I mean, we got, we went to magic kingdom and we literally walked on, um, pirates of the Caribbean or the jungle cruise and pirates of the Caribbean. The first time I actually had to wait on a ride was splash mountain. And I waited like five minutes. Um, and then we waited 10 minutes for the haunted mansion. And when we got off the haunted mansion, you know, I, I was telling my, my why I'm like, this isn't what this is usually like. Like this is usually just insanely busy. Um, And since then, you know, we've, I've I've probably been back another four times, maybe Um, it's kind of worked out where it's, it's almost every other year um, we'll go for, for some reason. Um, And it'll be for conferences that are in the area or um, planning, planning meetings, with people that are in the area. And then since starting to teach the class um, it's also allowed me to kind of delve deeper into my fandom of Disney. Um, And then, I mean, all of the, just anything you can think about with Disney now, like Pixar and Lucasfilm and Marvel and all the, you know, the Fox acquisition. And so it really has become this um, it's, the class itself has allowed me to um, explore my fandom deeper and just engage in all these different and Disney in all these different ways. Writing, research, um, obviously attending, talking about it and teaching. Um, so it's been really, really fun.
0: Yeah, well, and I love to dive into so much of what you said. And I know that's going to comprise a lot of our conversation. So I guess to transition to one piece of who you are is a scholar, a researcher. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder as someone whose doctorate is in sports administration, how you folded Disney into your research agenda. I know um, some of your earlier work focused on the role of uh, like uh, the ESPN wide world of sports and, and some of the sporting events at Walt Disney World and, and stuff along those lines. But I'm wondering how if and how that naturally folded into the the types of things that you publish.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, so when I started um, my main area of research is in group and out group behavior. Um, And so rivalry in sport is how people think about that Um, rivalry and competition. And so when I started out um, there, there was, there wasn't a lot of work on rivalry. Um, So that meant like in order to quantitatively, measure what rivalry actually means. Um, previous researchers had used it as a, a variable here and there. Um, but to quantitatively measure it and be able to do it, you know, the the way that I wanted to, um, we had to develop a scale for it. So that's actually what my dissertation was on is developing and validating a scale to measure band behavior toward their outgroups or toward their rival teams. And, um, so, the the sport um, rival the sport the sport rivalry fan perception scale was was developed, um, and along with that, glory out of reflective failure was identified, which explains similar to Schadenfreude, but explains how somebody uh, benefits and and celebrates the failure of a rival when their team or their group isn't involved. So like Schadenfreude is taking pleasure in the demise of someone else. Um, Gorfing is when that out group is an actual rival. Um, And so it kind of is a heightened level of importance in that group identity um, and in a person's life. And so, um, yeah, early on, we really were focusing on the marketing aspects and the marketing implications of rivalry. Um, you know, how how are uh, rival competitions marketed and what do they mean and what do they do to fans? And it was very quickly or very soon, early on, that um, really discovered, you know, what really needs to happen is we need to talk about how to do this responsibly. Because there's so many different examples, so many horrible examples of people that they take their fandoms and they take their identity so seriously that they have actually hurt people from a different group. Um, and we've done a series of studies um, that I've done with with Dr. Dan Wan, who is uh, he's kind of known as the he developed the first fandom study or the first fandom scale. Um, and and he's colloquially known as Dr. Fandom. Actually ESPN named him Dr. Fandom. So, um, so it's in the zeitgeist, but um, that we, we did a series of studies that were uh, people we would ask people how likely would they be to consider tripping a player, coach, or fan of the rival team, her breaking the leg of a coach, fan of the rival team physically hurting or in some of those studies some of the ones he did and some of the ones i did we would actually ask um how likely would you be to consider murdering a fan coach or uh, player of the rival team and consistently over six or seven different studies One to 2% of people said they would consider, they would definitely consider, so a seven out of seven on scale would definitely consider that most heinous act of aggression, which in sometimes was consider murdering somebody and and other studies it would, it would say physically harming. Um, But so that became kind of the, the focal point of the research is that look there, you hope people are exaggerating that. But the fact that we have seen it so, this many times, you as an organization, you have to be aware of that. Um, and, you know, in some of the quantitative, qualitative work I had done in, in, in interviews, I had been told similar things like, you know, I would ask people "Their would they ever support their rival team? And, and somebody would say something to the effect of, you know, the, the Taliban was kind of the in the popular eye at that time. In the United States. And they would say, um, if my rival team were playing the Taliban, I would don a turban. Or if my rival team stadium blew up and everyone inside of it died, I would rejoice. And again, like you hope these are just like exaggerated comments to, to be like as over the top as possible. But you do hear them over and over and over again. So it definitely was pointing towards something that, hey, we need to look at the organization's role in all of this. So we started looking at how do we, you know, how do organizations promote this and do, do certain ways that organizations promote these competitions? Does it, um, influence more negative behavior? And it does, you know, some of the wording that people use, um, like if, if there are advertisements or promotions that use the word hate, um, that kind of makes people more animus toward their outgroup, Um, and so, Through all that, we had started. I I started developing um, comic books to teach kids about rivalry and teach kids about how to behave towards somebody else. And so we actually created a character called uh, Sport Rivalry Man. And we had comic books that some of them he would tell the histories of different rivalries. And then there are some that are called the adventures of sport rivalry man, which basically would put the protagonist in a situation where they had to make a decision, whether like, um, like bullying somebody online or bullying on the school playground or um, making fun of a teacher, making fun of someone else. And ultimately, you know, they, they would, uh, they would make the right decision sometimes with the help of sport rivalry man. And, and, at that time is when I had, I just kind of allowed myself to lean more and more into popular culture. Um, and like we were creating comic books and doing this. And so I I was able to just kind of, I, I allowed myself to get into that. And I think, you know, like as an academic, like sometimes there are expectations of, of what you're doing, you know, and, and I had just gotten tenure and everything. So I was, um, kind of doing some branching out a little bit and um, in the way that I would deliver material or things. And so I started talking more and more about Disney in my classes to so much so that a colleague said, look, you should teach a class on this. And so that's where the class started. It started as a one hour class. Um, And then um, when I started the class, I also started writing about it because the the next phase of the research in trying to responsibly promote competition and deal with competition was comparing in-group and out-group behavior in a sport context with other contexts. And so that's where where all the research is now. Um, And so we had done things, the, the very first comparison study we did was comparing sport fans with fans of Disney parks. So how do sport fans view their favorite brand and the rival brand um, compared to how do Disney parks fans view the Disney parks and the universal parks? Um, and then we went on to do like comics, DC and Marvel, uh, science fiction between Star Trek and Star Wars. And we've done politics and online gaming and uh, shoe brands and uh, mobile phones and uh, different things like that. And and so the the book that's that's coming out later this year, we're actually looking at we're adding religion and we're also adding um uh, uh, Greek life in higher education um which I think will be really, really interesting. And so what we've done with that is we're, we've come up with a hierarchy of here are the, the fandom settings that influence the great like the highest or the most negativity um, and here are the ones that you know are on this at the bottom influence the least amount of negativity and along that with that we have a spectrum um, so people can it's like a nice visual rate so people could see and um, so that's kind of how it I got into writing about Disney um, and then really in a, to kind of wrap up this this, <laughs> this long bit Um, In an attempt to write more and more about entertainment and outside of just the sport industry and the sport entertainment industry, um, I started looking at different corporate rivalries. So I looked at the corporate rivalry between the Walt Disney Company and Comcast Corporation and rivalries in direct to stream, direct to consumer streaming services like Disney, Netflix, Peacock, HBO Max, everything that, you know, and um, so it's been really, really fun to uh, where we started and where we are now over the last, you know, 12 to 14 years now um, it's been, it, uh, I look at it and I think of it as this is like the definition of um, what a person does with their research line. When when they they just keep expanding it, um, and and you know now I talk about competition and in group and out group analysis and behavior um, in a very different way than I did when I started, um, and, and so it's been it's been a whole whole lot of fun
0: to do that. There's so much I'd love to unpack there. I, I can tell you're a former <laughs> a, a a fellow academic in terms of these uh, really passionate. Uh, soliloquies about your work and and it and and it's palpable. And what I gleaned from what you were sharing, Cody, is just the um, uh, no, no pun intended, there's a universal quality to looking at rivalry and mm-hmm. in-group versus out-group, particularly in the society we inhabit today where we are extremely polarized in terms mm-hmm. of politics and so many different uh social issues that become politicized, and this notion of our group versus the other which is very problematic and and we don't always look at you know the common threads or that there's sometimes a, a gray area that it's not as as opposite as i think um the media can sometimes perpetuate and it makes me wonder and i and i know some of your your work mm-hmm. has focused on like disney versus universal and and how fans interpret that and i'd love to go into that but i'm really curious given your proclivities and your research expertise as far as the rise of different types of media in influencing how folks make sense of of uh, rivalries and other groups. What's your sense on Disney like the Disney fan community and ultimately how it almost it's risen so um, so much over recent years to where it's not necessarily just a niche group, but rather mm-hmm. like you'll see, I mean, appreciating the choir, we see major publications talking about like the bad Disney fan community yeah. and and bad Disney adults or however you might uh, uh, describe that. What's your sense of how how the Disney fan community has evolved over recent years, particularly with social media and particularly with other entities taking note of in-group fighting or or negative reputations?
1: Yeah. And um first I I, I appreciate and I, I want to point out your uh you're talking about the passionate soliloquy. I, I call that being long-winded. <laughs> that,
0: no, so not you, at all.
1: you 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 have a much more eloquent way of of saying that. Um I appreciate that. The um what I think is really interesting is when we look at the different, when we compare different groups. Um at the top of the hierarchy, or at the most intense level of the the um, spectrum, however you however it helps make sense to whoever's listening, we have things like um, online gaming because people t- people when they are gaming, they say horrible things to each other. a lot of times to try to get into each other you know to get into each other's psyche and mess them up playing the game, but they say absolutely horrible things to each other. Uh, And then we have politics and then we have sport. And that's kind of that top tier. Um, It's nice that Disney parks is actually Disney fandom as far as um, influencing outgroup negativity. It's like the third from the lowest and theme parks is right above it. So we did a more general thing, including all theme parks. Theme parks is a little bit above it. Um, And actually, the the only two things currently that are below Disney fandom, or I should say Disney parks, is um, science fiction. So Star Wars and Star Trek and comics, Marvel and DC, which is what is so interesting is people associate. When you go to a Disney park and I've talked to many people about this, that when you go to a Disney park, everybody seems, at least in the beginning of the day when it's not hot and people are, you know, haven't eaten and and people aren't having meltdowns yet. People associate that like people are more happy when they're there. And that's representative or represented through the fact that like, when you go to Walt Disney world and you go to the magic kingdom, you park, you take a monorail across to the magic kingdom or you take a boat across the seven seas lagoon, um, and it's that that physical representation of, you know, separation of you're leaving the your normal world behind. you're coming to this fantastical world where you can, you know dream what you want, you can do what you want, you can have fun um, as you know, as long as you you have Disney Genie plus and you you <laughs> pay it and all that, obviously. But um so, but it, it it's so interesting that you have, theme parks and Disney parks, fandom, comics, and science fiction, which comics and science fiction, you know, all of those stories really talk about conflict. Like uh, most of those stories are about conflict. I mean, you look at star Wars and and, you know, the people talk about the philosophy and even the, the religious notions in star Wars about good and evil and same thing in star Trek and same, like people have made, you know, philosophical arguments with Marvel and and all of that. I, I mean, in our class, we talk about um what Marvel superhero are you? Um and that, that comes from like a, a paper I actually wrote on that. Um but you know the these two settings that talk about conflict, well, they actually influence the least amount of negativity. Um and there and and um comics or I'm sorry, science fiction is is below the 4.0, the neutral. Uh, level, so it actually, like, you could argue that it influences some positive notion or positive view toward the outgroup because it it is, you know, below that neutral point. And um, but you know, I think one thing that it does with all three of those settings is in comics and uh, science fiction. I think that it creates this sense of an in-group, regardless of what brand you prefer. Because first, if you're a Star Trek fan, you've probably have watched Star Wars at some point. If you're a Marvel fan, you probably have read DC at some point or like some of the DC products. If you are a Disney fan and you like going to the parks, especially if you're not from Orlando or Southern California, well, you've probably gone to Universal on some of those trips as well. And so you kind of create this in group of are you a theme park fan? are you a comics fan? Are you a science fiction fan? And I think a lot of that is because of the way that people in those groups are viewed. Um, You know, recently when you, you mentioned Disney adults and people kind of talk about like, you're an adult and you go to Disney, you don't have kids or you're, you're like taking your kids along just so you can go. Like, and they're saying that like that, that, you know, there's, there's something wrong with that. Well, I'm a firm believer that, and we talk about this a lot in the class, that if you're a fan of something and it doesn't hurt someone else, and it doesn't hurt you, so like you're not like in a situation where you know you're you're caught up in something you'll need to be caught up in. Um, well, that's generally a, a positive thing. Because if you are a fan of something and 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 you are allowed you allow yourself to kind of exhibit that fandom and live that fandom, well makes you a happier person. It makes your interactions with other people happier in in general. It, for the most part, it makes you a more, um, you know, like useful member of society. Um, so I think what we have seen, and this isn't something new in the media that like this, this, you know, notion of in-group and out-group and, and, and we could, we could have a whole other, like, episode or multi-part episode talking about all the like just all the horrific things that have happened because of in-group and out-group behavior and the way that it's used I mean we we could talk about how the how language is used in, in war settings to like explain you know to describe people in a way that is non-human so people don't feel bad about doing something to that person like Um, I mean, throughout history, when nations go to war, they, you know, some of the common refrains will be like, uh, like they'll refer to the enemy as insects or, or, or bugs or dogs or something, because, you know, like for the people that were fighting, it's, it's much easier to try to extinguish, um, an insect than it is like, look across and see another human being, you know, like, so we could, we could talk about all of that, um, but i think that it's also in our society right now because we somewhat because we have become more divided um that it's that it's that question of chicken or the egg are we more divided because of what we consume and 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 the way that um what we consume is is describing the outgroup you know i mean it, it's so interesting. Everybody, it's like, everybody describes an outgroup as a cult. Um, You know, so like if, if you are a member of your group and you're describing a group that you don't agree with as a cult, cult, well, they're doing the same exact thing to you, right? Because there's such a negative connotation of of what like cult behavior is because of the horrific examples we've seen. Um, And so I find that really interesting that it's, it's almost that are we being, are we being fed this information, and so we adapt to that, or are we being fed this type of information and this type of like arguing and back and forth and vitriol because that's kind of what the media companies have seen and that's that's what that's what sells, you know? I mean, after all, we're a consumer society that we love virtual, I mean, we love uh, reality TV, and why do we love that? Because we we like seeing people. And, you know, um, like competitive situations or, or, um, or arguing. Um, and it's better if we're not involved, like it, it's more fun to to watch something happen than it is to actually be involved in it. So as a, you know, we are a society that um, like, we love reality television and we, we love seeing people argue and we love seeing that like competition and the, the conflict. And it's better if we're not involved directly. Um, so I think that, I mean, reality television has been around for so long. The the show, I I talk to my students all the time about the shows on the sports channels where people are arguing back and forth. There's a reason they're doing that is because people like seeing that. And so that I think, obviously, people see that's what sells. That's what is attractive to consumers. so those narratives tend to get pushed um where and where we are as a society we actually I think we just talked about this a class yesterday I think we need to be finding ways to come together. Um, the whole purpose of the the hierarchy and the spectrum we develop or we're working on now and continually adding to the whole purpose of that is to um, try to help people that, let's say you have somebody who's a fan of team a and a fan of team B and they never can agree on anything in that setting. Well, maybe they're both fans of star Wars or they're both fans of Marvel or they're both fans of going to the Disney parks. Well, at least there's something there that they can communicate about. If you have, you know, somebody who considers themselves a Democrat and somebody who considers themselves a Republican, that they're, they're so far apart in their political ideology Um, And, and like, you know, those are for the, for the most part, those are issues that, that frankly are really impacting people's lives. The decisions made at those kinds of levels. Um, But you also have like, maybe the people that are in that setting. Well, they're also fans of something else that they have some commonalities. Um, The extended hypothesis or extended uh, contact hypothesis says, if you, Or if you have extended contact, repeated contact with someone from an out group that doesn't agree with you. Well, eventually um, the hypothesis says that eventually both members of that like, you know, relationship should start to understand each other a little bit more to the point of maybe they never agree, but they can more along more coexist with each other. Um, There's a there's a great political book about that, that, um, you know, and its thesis is saying, look, if you consider yourself a progressive or conservative, you don't have to agree with what the other person is saying or doing, but we do live in a society where everybody has to interact. Um, and so we do need to find, we need to try to find ways where we can interact with people um, when it is, it, you know, when when the person is not doing something that is fundamentally hurting someone else. I, I think you know, unfortunately, I think over the last uh, five or six years we've seen um, things that are 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 rise to the level of of morality um, or moral negativity that you know that can't be um, kind of maybe that shouldn't be you you know like try to find commonalities of certain things but you know for for most people that aren't doing something that it's fundamentally hurting someone um, then finding commonalities is a is a good thing for the most part if that makes sense.
0: Yeah no I think you explained that um, extremely well and you know, I'm thinking about just context and finding common ground. And and one one theme that I've often experienced more so on a Disney cruise than in the parks is this notion of community. You're having Mm -hmm. a shared experience that's very common. The reason why I'm focusing on the cruise line is because it's a very compact, concentrated experience where you're going to be engaging with the same couple of thousand other folks over Mm -hmm. the course of days or a week. But even in a theme park setting that can still manifest, albeit differently. But what my my question for you is along the lines of one of your recent articles, which focused on the significance of family and positive memories and influencing how fans feel loyal to attending the Disney theme parks, right? But I'm, I'm wondering in light of the fact that the parks are often much more crowded than they mm-hmm. were a decade ago, much more financially unfeasible. Um, so you basically have folks who have either saved up for many, many years or those in a much higher socioeconomic status, it's it's the, the parks are changing in terms of uh, who has access, yeah. who's experiencing it, and ultimately what the conditions are. So Disney exerting more control, so there's less spontaneity in terms of planning your day, the financial aspect. And as we've seen, unfortunately, in various news media, showing fights breaking out at the parks. Yeah. And perhaps this has happened, but now we have social media not now, but we've—it's increasingly yeah. a presence in our lives. How do you make sense of all of this within the context of your scholarship, which part of it at least where where focuses on that that favoritism that people associate with Disney theme parks? But then there's infighting in that context, and 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 these harsher conditions that make it a less favorable experience for for some folks.
1: Yeah, I well, and I think there's some really good work in the, the sport context from a colleague of mine um, named Julie Partridge that she does a lot of work on um, uh, actually on shame that if an in-group member does something that you find shameful, what does that do to you and what does that do to you the the individual? And um, you know there, there's also something that when, what people tend to do is maybe they feel shame internally or, they will start to distance themselves from that behavior. Um, And this is something that uh, sport fans are probably well aware of that uh, um, basking in reflective glory, cutting off reflective failure that, but really colloquially what it is is after a win, people will say, we won, we won, we played so great. Well, we were in this, I was in the stands, but we played great Um, after a loss, they lost. And why do we do that? It's because we as humans, we want all the positive attributes or the positive um, things from that, but we don't want the negative consequences that come from a loss. And so we try to distance ourselves from that. And I think we have started to see that in, in other areas as well where if, if an experience if your experience isn't what you want it to be, then a lot of times as humans, we've, we have to find a reason for that. And a lot of times we'll point to someone else and say, this is what this is. This is the reason, um, our experience isn't the way we want it to be. Um, and, and I think that kind of because now, and it's not now, I mean, if you've, if you've ever, I've talked to people who've gone to to Disney parks with kids for a long time. It's more stressful because, you know, like you're, you're trying to do a lot, but I I do think when people, because of the pricing um, and, and, and everything that goes into it now with the planning and all of that, you know, that it was first the, the, the fast passes and then, and then fast pass plus where you could plan Six months out, or if you were uh, not six, uh, 60 days out, sorry, if you were staying on property and you could plan your, um, dining six months out, like people really, you know, they, the big Disney fans really liked that. And that was part of their experience. And it was fun to do that. And now, now that everything except for dining is pretty much day of planning, well, there, there's more stress. And along with that is the stress of, especially if because the prices are what they are that maybe families who would go every two years or every three years, maybe it's like, look, we can only go one time or we can go every six or seven years. So when we're here, we need to get the most out of our money that we can. And, and it's that they kind of put into that mindset and it's, it's not just the consumers that are doing that. It's, it's all of the things that they're seeing and, and the, the impact from, you know, what's going on in the parks and everything, I believe that, that, that pressure is there that we need to ride this many number of attractions. And if you've ever gone with kids, you know, like that's their definition of success at at, at any park And at a, at a Disney theme park, especially that um, they want to ride as many attractions as they can. So it does put that stress on people about um, like, okay, I've got to get up and at seven o'clock, I've got to get the, the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, I've got to get um, Snow White mine um, Train ride. And so I think it places people in a little bit different setting because you're you're stressed about trying to hit a certain marker for success. And when you don't hit that marker for success, and and a lot of people I've talked to, and I tell people also like, don't have those markers because actually the most fun of walking through a Disney park is walking through and seeing everything and just the, the total experience. It's not necessarily getting on and, and standing in line for attractions for two hours. That you know, that's that's not the most fun thing. Um, but also that's me saying that. From somebody who's been a number of times now in my life. And if somebody is going for one time in their life and and everybody that they've talked to about Disney has said, you have to ride this ride or you have to do this, you have to do that. Well, then it is an expectation for them that they, they need to do that in order to feel, quote unquote, successful in their trip. And when something doesn't happen the way that they want it to, well, then we kind of revert as human beings to finding a reason for that and and pointing for, um, well, this is the reason it didn't happen. It's this person's fault or it's this person's fault. And, you know, I mean, one of the, the more recent videos of a fight came because like people were cutting in line. Um, and I mean, I just, I, I I think how sad it is that, you go, I mean, it almost makes me cry when I think about it. you go with the expectation of you're going to have this great day. And then, and then it ends like that and that's it. And, and because you get in a fight at a Disney park, you're, you're done, you're, you're gone. And and you may be banned for never coming to that park again. Like it is very sad that, that it, that it, you know, the way that it started and the way that it ends is, um, like it's like a a complete 180 in in the negative uh, a negative way you know you're you're put in a more stressful situation um and, and unfortunately that's one of the byproducts of being in those stressful situations I think is you just you become upset easier um and you know that's those are some of the things that unfortunately are happening and 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 they are they seem to be few and far between Um, but it's still unfortunate. I mean, imagine I've long talked about in the sports setting. If you go to a sporting event or an entertainment event, and now if you go to a theme park and you see people fighting, well, that could have such a like negative impact on everybody who sees that, that maybe you don't want to associate with that again. I mean, I think a lot of people, if they've ever seen a physical confrontation, it stays with you. Like it, it is, it, it, it's a disturbing experience. And so maybe for some people, they say, I don't want to experience this again. And so I'm going to stay away from this. Um, and so organizations, all entertainment organizations have to deal with that. And they, they have to figure out um, ways to, to make the fan, the consumer experience better, more engaging and safer at the same time.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of the notion of you're more likely to leave a one-star review for something if it left a really strong bad taste in your mouth than a five-star experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that folks, I mean, usually that's why reviews can be so hard to interrogate when you're trying to figure out where to stay or what to experience. But you're right in terms of the notion of seeing something so intensely negative within the context of a park or or an yeah. experience that you've so longed to have. That that attains your opinion of yeah. of a place and yeah. and the people who occupy that environment. Yeah. But one instead, oh, one one thing real quick, I <clears throat> because of because of what I've I've researched and
1: written about, I consider myself. I, I sometimes I'm hyper aware of these type of relationships, and the last time we went to Disney, um, we did Disney genie and the lightning lane, the individual lightning lanes, and we loved it. And so I, I will always justify it. So like, there is my hypocrisy. But at the same time, when I was using those, and I was walking up to the front of the lines with the, the family, I, I, you know, I did, I felt bad for people that it's like, people standing in line, they know these people are going to the front of the line, because they are either able to spend this or they chose to do this. They have the resources to do it or, or you know, plan for this. Um, whereas, you know, it used to be even with the old FastPass Plus system, everybody had three. And then after you use your third, like then you you, know, you get one at a time. But so everybody kind of knew that was, you know, well, they're using one of their three right now. We'll be able to use our three later. Um, so it, it does. And it's not like Disney is creating some cast system um, like it's, it's been, a, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's not theme parks that are doing it. It's not entertainment companies that are doing it. I mean, go back in history and look at all the different systems, but um, it did feel very weird to me. Um, But at, again, even for someone like me that I can say that felt weird for me, as I said, I'll justify paying for that and using that on, on our future trips as well, because it, it was a great experience for us um but you know there maybe it is cre- it is creating a further divide between people that are consuming the product
0: yeah uh, it's it's extremely tricky and nuanced and um i could imagine we could have a subsequent conversation about that cuz yeah. it's it's so rich um and there's so much to discuss i want to make sure Uh, that we focus um, some time on your Disney class. Um, You talked a little bit about what sparked its inception, and certainly I would recommend if folks feel inclined to check out your YouTube channel and they can see some examples of some of the lectures, uh, which I, I enjoyed. But I'm wondering, in developing the curriculum for a topic as vast as Disney fandom, how did you go about that? And how did you make sense of what assignments you wanted to incorporate this year working with college students honor students if i'm not mistaken yeah, yeah honor students so how did you how did you make sense of what was going to be a fruitful experience for them that really interrogates disney fandom along the way
1: yeah well i i kind of had a little bit of benefit of before i taught the disney class i taught another honors class on rivalry um and, and the honors classes exist at the university so that people that are in the honors program are in a class with students outside of their major, so they're getting to to mingle with other people, and then they also see um, a professor in a different light. Um, so you know, like people typically see me talking about sport and entertainment marketing or or international organizations, and then now they see me like they're in a in a class I'm talking about Disney and how much I like Disney and the strategy, and, and we're holding votes about what's the best Marvel character and Disney Pixar movie and stuff like that. Like it it is a, you know, it's a completely different view for people. But so that first class I taught on rivalry, I actually thought like, okay, I'm, here's what this are, these are with honor students, I'm going to have them read this and this and this and this, and they're just going to love it. Um, And, you know, I mean, it's, you're still, you're dealing with people that are not in your area. Um, and you're dealing with college students who are probably taking 15 other hours. So, you know, I had the benefit of after that first semester of teaching that class, thinking, like, OK, I need to scale this back like this is it's it shouldn't be burdensome on people. It should be interesting for people. So when I started the Disney class, um, I literally um, when I said one of my colleagues said you should teach a class on Disney, I emailed the dean of the uh, honors college and said, hey, I, I I can teach this class. I think it would be interesting. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. And they just basically said, OK, fine, do that. And she gave me the, you know, signed me up for it. I walked into class on the first day and I am a big parks fan uh, and I like watching like videos of parks, walkthroughs and everything. So I walked into class on the first day and I said, hey, here is what my plan is like. And it literally was like, we're going to talk about the parks. We're going to talk about like why don't you walk down the middle of uh, Liberty square? Like, why is the, you know, why is the concrete a different color there? What, what are the names on, um, on, on main street USA when you're walking down that? And, and why when you're in town square is the, the concrete red and everything. Like, it seems like you're walking into a movie theater and you're looking at credits and because like, those are the things that I just, I thought were so interesting. Um, But I said, so here's what I'm thinking and we'll watch videos of walkthroughs, and I, I like had kind of I knew people who did a lot of stuff like that, like John Sicari and Lou Mongello and people. And I said, we'll watch some of these videos and um, we'll watch the the Dreamfinders documentary. Um, but I said, "But is there something you want to know?" And I mean, the doors just flew open. Um, people wanted to know the history of the company. They wanted to know about, like, Pixar and the acquisitions and um, like about Walt Disney himself, like the good and the bad uh, or the positive and the negative, because, you know, like any historical character or sorry, any historical person, um, you know, once they've passed away, I I think people kind of have certain perceptions about them and there's always, you know, with human beings, there's positive and negative impacts that they've had and decisions that they've made. Um, And so, then they had um, the, somebody actually did say, like, I want to learn how to open or start a theme park. And I'm like, I have, yeah, that this class is not going to help with that, but we'll talk about the other stuff. Um, and so all of that allowed me to, I just started listening to a whole bunch of audiobooks because I love audiobooks about the history of the company, about the history of Pixar the, um, the history of Marvel and the competition between Marvel and DC. And it just allowed me to, as I said, like really do this deep dive into my fandom. And it almost gave me like this professional reason to do it. Like, oh, well, you know, I, I need to listen to this because I like, guess for class and everything when, you know, in reality, it's, it's also just, it's very cathartic to be able to do all of that. um, And it allowed me to talk to people about what it was to be a fan of Disney and, and people who like worked with the company and, and did certain things. Um, and so that's the way that it started is um, I just kind of said, all right, as I learn things, I'll share things. And uh, spring 2020 rolls around. And um, we had just had Ridley Pearson, who's the author of the Kingdom Keeper series. He actually Skyped in with class. And then, you know, like three weeks later, um, the world turns upside down and we're like all sitting in front of our computers at our houses, not on campus, doing everything remote. And I had a speaker lined up that was going to speak in class, um, Lee Cockrell, who, who used to be the, you know, he's a retired executive for Walt Disney World. He was over Walt Disney World at one point. And he messaged me and said, look, you know, do you want to do something just one-on-one or is the class meeting virtual? What do you want to do? And I said, let's just try something one-on-one. And so we did a one-on-one kind of like we're doing here. And um, then it dawned on me that, look, I don't have to, I'm not constrained by the class period anymore. It really is now just working out the schedule between myself and the person that we're going to talk to. And so that's what we started doing. And then. As I was telling you uh, before we recorded in fall 2020, I found out that some people were would put the YouTube videos on and then they would like do other stuff and they weren't necessarily watching. And I said, well, then we'll start a podcast so you'll have the audio file of it. And um, so then you can it takes up less bandwidth. You can go on a walk. You can do whatever you want. Um, And so it's just because of those things, it's just exploded into. Like this, I I have been lucky enough to meet many many different people who are fans uh, like yourself, and I'm and also like you have met other people who are fans, and and you know it feels good to just to to talk about something that you really really enjoy, um and so now we're in a situation in the class where you know it's a 15 week class and it's a it's a three hour class so. It, it's a little unreasonable to expect students who are taking all of these hours, all these other classes in college to, hey, you're going to listen to six or seven of these interviews in a week, you know? Um, so now it is where um, I have interviews and visits uh, kind of put into different categories where if somebody is interested in the parks, here are the ones that focus on the parks. If they're interested in media, here's the ones that are interested in media or focused on that. And um, so on the syllabus, what the students see is uh, there's a column in the schedule that says here, either, you, either YouTube or the podcast, you do one or the other because they're the same, uh, just different formats. And you're going to watch or listen to at least two of these. And I say at least two so that if there are people, occasionally there are people that they want to listen to more than two in a week because we're talking about something that is really, really interesting to them. Um, or they are big fans of Marvel. So they want to make sure that they listen to all of the content about Marvel or all the content where we talk about media. And, you know, because we've done shows on um, analyzing the media. Some of the, um, when Moon Knight was out, um, I had a colleague talk about, who is a clinical psychologist, talk about the representation of dissociative identity disorder in Moon Knight and how well they did. And, and, and they did a pretty, according to, to Helm, they did a pretty good job obviously taking some creative liberties here and there. Like if for people who've seen the show, um, somebody who suffers from dissociative identity disorder, uh, my colleague said, you know, they don't have conversations with themselves in the mirror, but for a theatrical representation, that's how they needed to do that. So you would be able to understand. Um, And then, you know, we also did one during moon night with um, a, a, a researcher in the Egyptology program at the University of Memphis. Because the University of Memphis has a very, very good Egyptology program. Um, Memphis actually being like strong ties to the the ancient city of Memphis, uh, the the capital of the of the first capital of ancient Egypt. And so that's kind of where the city of Memphis, Tennessee gets its name. And like we have a pyramid that we used to play basketball in, now is a Bass Pro shop downtown and things like so um but that so there are very strong ties with that. And so I wanted to talk to somebody about the representation of Egyptian mythology. And again, they did a pretty good job with it while taking some creative liberties that, that um he said were pretty understandable. Um and so those those were those were really, really fun conversations. And I've had every conversation that I have, I walk away with two thoughts, like that, like one is we go in many different areas that it doesn't, it never goes exactly the way that I think it's going to go, which is amazing. And it's so much fun. And then my second thought is like, I almost feel guilty that like, um, I wonder if the other person on the other side is thinking like, is how well is it organized or whatever, or should I, you know, lay out, I lay out topics and I send people beforehand, but, but we inevitably end up talking about like three or four different things as well. Um, and so it's just been like, it's just been this really, really fun thing. And so when we meet in classes, we just, you know, we have general conversations. We're talking about things that are happening with the company right now. Um, strategy that's happening with the company. And then, you know, we will transition into our votes of what's, you know, what's your favorite Walt Disney world attraction, um, and things like that. So it's just supposed to be, it's a fandom class. And as I said, the umbrella of that class is kind of thinking if you enjoy something and it doesn't hurt someone else and it doesn't hurt you, then that's generally a good thing. And it's okay to be a fan of something. I think, especially as people get older um you know that's one of the things with with why people talk about disney adults in a negative light is like um you know just maybe as we should just let people enjoy what they enjoy as long as it's not fundamentally hurting someone else or hurting themselves then um if it makes somebody happy well that's a that's generally a good thing
0: yeah well and i think you you really uh demonstrate that in action in terms of weaving together your work and your passions and uh, in essence, you you actually uh, encapsulated several questions I had for you about both your your teaching and and the podcast and uh, oh thank you. <laughs> and what i I guess I'm wondering as we begin to to wrap up what what are some future topics you're hoping to cover on the podcast and or what are some forthcoming disney related research projects that you might be excited to work on? So I
1: think um, I, I constantly ask students about um, different topics and everything. Um, and we're going to have another, and I think we're going to have a panel on Disney musicals, which I think you would real you might enjoy taking part in that. Um, so that would be, that would be one thing um, I like to, there's somebody that I check in every year about Disney plus. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a more regular thing. Um, something that the students have talked a lot about is the Disney Channel, and I didn't. Excuse me. By the time the Disney Channel was like widely available in my area when I was growing up, I was kind of out of that viewership target market. And so, but people are very interested in you know the positive and the negatives of of, of that, and so trying to find someone who can who can talk about that um, and also preparing myself to be able to have a, a good meaningful conversation about that because one thing I always like to do is um I, I don't mind I enjoy having the deep dive conversations um I just want to make sure that I'm able to do that and, and I I kind of you know um am as- am as fair to the topic as I can be. I, I, I'm not like kind of messing up talking about the topic just out of my own like ignorance or, or not having read a lot about it. Um, I think those are some areas I, I, um, think it'd be really interesting. I I'm still trying to add more content about Pixar, um, and about Lucasfilm. Um, and, um, it's, it, you know, I I'll I'll get off of an interview with somebody and think, oh, here's four or five more topics for this, you know, and um, like I have I've been wanting to for a long time do one on Disney collecting, and I, I haven't yet, and uh, like you know, kind of why do we why do we collect? What do we get out of out of collecting all of this stuff? And, and you know, like it, it it taps into our nostalgia of being there and. Our memories of things, so there. Those are some of the the topics right now that I'm thinking, and there. The fun thing about this is there's there's going to be you know, I'm sure there's going to be 50 more topics that I'll think of over the next month or two or, or year or something. As far as research, I think what is so interesting right now is the is in the streaming space. I I love reading more about direct to consumer streaming because that's where we're seeing so much movement in entertainment and we're seeing some of the like really the the like, some real staunch competition in streaming spaces and, and and people making and companies and corporations making some some pretty drastic decisions. I mean right now you know I just, got finished reading and listening about like what uh, what is happening with HBO max and, and um, HBO or uh, Warner brothers discovery and how they're pulling things off of the streaming services and some of the reasons why they're doing that. And, and what it's doing to fans of like, they're, they're pulling a lot of animated um, animation off of there. And what that's doing to those fan groups and everything. And, you know, uh, recently a topic about Disney is um, you know, maybe two weeks ago or, or last week or something, there was a um, a report from a an activist investor who is, you know, telling Disney they need to buy all of Hulu so they can quickly incorporate that um before that contract is up in 2024. And they potentially they're gonna have to spend more money to pay Comcast for their their share of it. Um and maybe they should divest from ESPN. And which what I think is very interesting is if the way that it seems, and and the people that I've listened to about this, uh, this seems to be what what most of them are saying as well. Is that if you if the company divested from ESPN, and in, in a number of two or three years, more and more companies are putting live sports entertainment on their streaming services. So if you were to divest right now, um, in two or three years, you're going to want sports content on there, and you're going to look back and say we just let go of the largest sports entertainment brand in the world. Um granted ESPN is losing a lot of money for Disney. Um but you know the one of the original reasons the ABC the AS ABC um ESPN purchase happened in the early 1980s was because of the money that ESPN is making and because of the way that uh, ESPN is set up on on terrestrial cable like people who have terrestrial cable regardless if they watch ESPN or not they're paying for ESPN and their monthly package and and the the company's still getting that money it's it's a diminishing amount of money but they're still getting that money on a on a monthly basis and so there's still a lot of revenue coming in and so I think things like that are really interesting to me and and looking at this where where are we going? in this competitive aspect with these different streaming services. Um, I think it's going, you know, specific to the parks and specific to Orlando when um, universal opens Epic adventure, that's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Is Disney, will this be the catalyst for Disney to open a fifth gate? Um, You know, it was actually, if you go back and you, you look at the history of the two companies, it was, Uh, Walt Disney wanted to have something similar to Universal City Studios where that were giving tours around their studio lot. And so that was kind of the initial planning for what was what he referred to as the Mickey Mouse Park and then ultimately became Disneyland, which was its own standalone theme park. And it, it wasn't on the studio lot. But then you look at Throughout the history, Universal sees that. So they start adding more to Universal and Disney's adding more. And then when Disney came to Florida, that kind of, you know, it was almost two decades later, but Universal decided we need to have a presence in Florida because, you know, this is this is growing so rapidly. And that was during the Michael Eisner years. And there's, you know, there there are uh, rumors about MGM Studios, you know, like people saying MGM Studios was they were going to have a a Hollywood pavilion in Epcot that just ended up turning out to be a theme park, but you know, it opened a little bit before universal studios, Florida opened. So those two companies on the, from the theme park, um, perspective, like in that theme park space have been so competitive. And now, you know, that Comcast owns universal, it's competitive on, on, on many, many different levels. Um, and, the uh, another really interesting thing is what's happening with Marvel right now um, that, you know, there are rumors of everybody knows there there's a there was an incredible Hulk standalone movie in 2008. And then his story has had to really been told through other characters, movies, along with other characters, because um, Disney could produce an incredible Hulk movie, but Universal would get the a lot of the proceeds from that. Um, and, you know, is that relationship ever going to change um, or is, is the contract with Universal going to, is it coming to an end? Is it going to be dissolved or what? Um, same thing with the theme park rights. Universal owns the theme park rights to Marvel, which is why there's a Marvel land at, um, at Islands of Adventure, But you go to California and you can see all the Marvel characters in the Disney theme parks, but you can't see most of the Marvel characters in Walt Disney World. And so kind of getting into some of some of those relationships and negotiations and like, you know, uh, add in there Sony with with Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse and and how that all interweaves with the MCU and everything on the, the the corporate competition and also cooperation has become very, very interesting to me over the last four or five years of this. So I think
0: those are probably some some future areas as well. Yeah, you have your next 100 episodes covered <laughs> and all of your classes, all the spinoffs. Yeah, I, I definitely hear that. Um, yeah, I I could talk about that for long stretches because I, I find those to be fascinating topics. And I might have a few uh, ideas for you after we record, but I want to get Work. to our uh, set of conclusion questions I ask every guest. Um, so there's some, uh, three music questions, two book related questions, and then a unique question. Okay. So no right answers. It's just your opinion. Uh, so on the music front, Cody, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Um, you know I mean? It would be from the Renaissance
1: and I bet it was, it was either, well, I I don't know. I, I would say it's, it's either Aladdin, um, Little Mermaid, Lion King, or uh, Beauty and the Beast, and, and you 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 pick your you just pick the time that I was listening to things. Um, I remember listening to all of those, just so much uh, growing up. Um, if you're asking now, and I don't know, is that another question? I don't want. Uh, that's not another
0: question. Okay, but if you want to share, it, go for it.
1: If you're asking now, I mean, you know, with with the when the boy when we drive to school. Um, we typically have soundtracks on and we have playlists on and everything. So that's anywhere from, um, Encanto to Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins returns and things like that. Um, that it, it, Disney music, I think for so many people has been such a large part of their life. And, and I'm no, I'm no different in that, that, uh, it's, it's been with me pretty much my whole life, I
0: think. Awesome. Well, next question is what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? You know, I I think probably
1: most recently, I think like everybody or not everybody, like most people, it's probably something from Encanto like uh we don't talk about Bruno or I absolutely loved um and I, I now the name escapes me, the song that um her sister sings about um Basically holding up the world. Uh, oh, uh, surface, surface pressure. pressure. Yeah. yeah, like 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 those songs and and that movie's so amazing that if you the more and more you listen to that soundtrack, I mean it's just like those lyrics are in some ways heartbreaking. Like we don't talk about Bruno is like that's like a that's a very like touching and in some ways a very sad song that it's like you know, not talking about this family member because of of um of different things that, that people can read into it. And, and, um, but the, the song that I like singing with the boys the most is actually a cover is not the book from Mary Poppins returns. Cause it has that fast part from, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And, uh, we, we've, we have sang it enough that, that, uh, the boys can now sing the fast parts as well. Um, and, and so between that and that's, uh, well, and then ironically, probably the song Guns and Ships from Hamilton has been stuck in stuck in heads a lot <laughs> as well.
0: Yeah, mul- multiple songs there. Yeah, uh, I, I realize I'm not giving one answer. You're, you're not. You're, you're, <laughs> you're missing the point. That's quite all right. But this one might have multiple answers too. Uh, what Disney film, so singular, one film, do you feel is the most underrated music? So people perhaps don't talk about it all the time. It's not commonly uh, on playlists? What, what do you feel is underrated? Um, I think for me, um,
1: and I don't know, Mike, people, people may think this is completely wrong because people actually do think about this. Uh, Mary Poppins returns, I think is one that the music of Mary Poppins is, is held up in such high esteem and, and it, it is great. Like I we sing that all the time, Super califragilistic and everything, but, um, the mary poppins returns i remember when that movie came out feeling so excited that here's a mary poppins movie in my lifetime like i had read about how um happy people were when the first mary poppins came out and i'm like i get to experience this now this is amazing and so i love that soundtrack and one that um is a is an acquire acquire property though um I think is the greatest showman is an amazing soundtrack um, in no way. Is it, is it like a, a uh, accurate representation of, of like his life, but the music is amazing and the the movie musical is amazing in it. I think.
0: Very nice. Yeah. And I feel like it was so unfortunate with Mary Poppins returns that it's box office was not quite as strong as I think people had envisioned, but you also have to consider that even though it's a familiar property, it still comes six, you know, 55 years after the original. But um, yeah, I agree with you. Great soundtrack. On the books front, what is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Um, Well, I guess I could pick up, I guess I could open up Audible. And
1: um, most of them are about like uh, corporate relations and everything. Um, I guess the most the most recent um a- I actually it, it's an acquired property, but I guess it would be the Marvel Studio story. Um oh, and cool. but um the most like specific to Disney um and it's been a while ago now, but I've listened to it many times, is Bob Iger's book. Um I like how he goes into the like different chapters are about different acquisitions and, and, and the stories that he tells. And, and obviously, you know, it, it is, he was still CEO at that time. And even if we was, I mean, obviously it's coming from that perspective. It's not like um, James Stewart's book, Disney war, where it's kind of like coming from outside, looking at different angles. This is uh, somewhat of, you know, coming from a controlled message, but I still find it really, really interesting when, um, he talks about all the acquisitions and, and, and in particular, where he talks about the launching of Disney plus, because, you know, that book came out early 2019, maybe before Disney plus launched. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this really like listening to that and now going back and listening to it, it's like, huh, look at what Disney plus became. Um, and look how well it's doing right now. Obviously that was because some people, a lot of people in the United States and around the world were locked down for months at a time. So they needed other things. And so that did help their subscriber numbers probably. But
0: um those are so that was, that's been a really interesting book. Yeah. And he was surprisingly raw and right of a lifetime. I didn't yeah. realize he would go into such level of detail about his personal life and challenges he faced. There a uh, number of just really um compelling anecdotes. Yeah. Um I mean that that intro in that book is just it's just heartbreaking
1: where he's talking about You know, he's he's talking about the 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 horrific accident at the uh, or at uh, the Grand Floridian. Correct. um, And he's talking about Pulse nightclub. And and, I mean, it's just like you just there are some parts of that that you're just crying listening to it. Um, It's so, yeah, it is. It was
0: surprisingly raw in some areas, I think, like you said. Yeah. So if second book question, and then one more, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, uh, what would it be about? Well, actually I it's, it's been like a
1: multi-year project. Um, but I actually do. I am. I'm forever in the early stages of writing a book about it. Um, and I, I, it's going to be about kind of Disney fandom, and it might even be called being a fan of Disney. I don't know. I might use the, the, the class title and the podcast title. Um, and it's going to be sort of this mixture of, hey, what is fandom? Like, what do we know as fandom in our culture? And what, what does it mean? And kind of what do we get from Disney? But it's also going to be mixed with, here's my fandom and, and, and here's, And because of this fandom, I've been able to write these things. I've been able to teach this class. So we're going to talk about some of that stuff as well. Um, And it'll kind of be um, almost a, a, I look at it as I think everybody in their lifetime, if they, if they want to should be able to write a book about something. Um, If they feel passionate about something and they want to do it, they should be able to do it. Um, And I hope that would be the message as well is that, Hey, I'm a, I'm a Disney fan. Um, Here's my attempt to tell my story and encourage other people here. Here's some things I've touched on along the way. And some people I've talked to and things we've done. and, um, And so be that encouraging factor for other people as well, if they want to tell their stories.
0: I love the notion behind that. So I guess we'll have to chart your progress. Um, (laughs) Last question. Uh, That's a unique question. So I I randomize it with every guest. So in your case, given that sports is central to your work, what unique sport would you like to see depicted as the theme of a Disney movie? So we've seen tons of Disney basketball films, football some of the you know major sports, but what's a unique sport that you haven't quite seen in a Disney movie that you think would be a great focal point? It could even um, be in a. It could even be a, like a based on a true story of a of an athlete, for instance. Um, you know, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think
1: of. You know, it, it's a movie that exists, and it was a Fox property. But uh, Eddie the Eagle, if you've ever that was a great that's an film. amazing story. It's amazing, yeah. and it, it's not on Disney Plus now. Um unfortunately because of contractual obligations, but, but like, you know, that's, that's a story about, um, uh, ski jumping, which is kind of an obscure sport to most people. Um, I think it would be interesting also to, uh, to maybe highlight, um, I mean, something that's huge right now in in our country is, uh, pickleball. I think that would be really interesting to to like, and it would be more along like maybe like a documentary about it with with some theatrical um, portions of it um I have I enjoy pretty much all of the Disney sports movies. Um, one thing I like about them is they're like they have that inspirational. Um, tone to them you know like mcfarland usa the rookie all of those are they're they're just it's i think of them as feel good movies um and so i think those are some i think like it would be interesting to to hear about pickleball um and i'm trying to think of if there's
0: a particular story um i think uh you know
1: the the Savannah Bananas are actually they have a series on ESPN Plus right now. I think that's pretty interesting. I think it would be interesting to do something on um, the Harlem Globetrotters also. The Savannah oh, okay. Bananas and Harlem Globetrotters because of because of their like strong entertainment value and, and like the way that they operate to to bring those sports. To different people, I think, is a is an interesting thing, and you know, especially like the the Harlem Globetrotters are, are so much more than just a traveling basketball and entertainment group and organization. They they've done they do like amazing things wherever they go, as far as like community outreach and, and helping communities and everything. So I think those would be some pretty interesting, um, whether they are theatrical representations or whether they're more you know kind of documentary or mix.
0: Yeah, I like those ideas, which kind of sparks my thought of, um, I'm not sure if you ever watched The Amazing Race, um, Mm -hmm. but uh, I think it was Flight Time and Big Easy were Harlem Globetrotters who competed on The Amazing Race multiple times, and they were very, very entertaining. So, yeah.
1: um, Um, And, you know, something that's happening right now, they're more into competitions, it's not sports, but um, have you ever watched the the Magic Quest shows on Disney Plus?
0: no um, they I did one
1: that. they started the first one was in december 2020 okay. and then they've had one christmas time 2021 they just came out with summer magic quest and they're um they're like you know they're disney channel stars like meg donnelly and, and milo manheim and, and others that are uh, but they're doing all these competitions in the theme parks
0: Oh, and out. It, okay.
1: like the, the first one was in magic kingdom. The second one was in Hollywood studios. This, this latest one was in Epcot. And the first two, they really reminded me of almost like a, almost like a kingdom keepers sort of like they had to like kind of protect the park from like uh, the, the evil queen or from Maleficent. Uh, and like, they have to go through these challenges to do this. Um, and I, I, like, I know, you know, years ago there were rumors of, a kingdom keeper series on, on Disney plus, which would, I think mean, that would be amazing. That would be a lot of fun to do that. I think some of those updated books are, are coming out soon and some new stories are coming out
0: soon. So. Yeah, that would be really cool. I know what was it, four and a half years ago, I went on it. Disney Cruise and Ridley Pearson was the speaker, and he gave a series of presentations. And he's talked, you know, at different points about a film or series being in different stages of development and never manifesting. John Favreau had a Magic Kingdom film in development for years, so uh, you know, in time, hopefully, we see that come to fruition. Uh, Last but not least, how can people follow your work and the being a fan of Disney podcast?
1: So I think the, the, the easiest way or what I tell people is if you um, if you're on Twitter, uh, my t- the handle on Twitter is C Havard Ph.D. So it, it's at C H A V as in Victor, A R D as in David and then Ph.D. Um, and the you can follow along with the class on Facebook um, at just being a fan of Disney. Um, if you, if you type that into, you search for that, you can, you can join the groups or join the group. Um, and those are probably the best ways to, to follow along with the class. If anybody has specific questions about things, uh, they could email me at my, my email is chavard at memphis.edu. So it's just my last name, C H A V as in Victor, A R D as in David and then at at memphis.edu. And I would be happy to follow up with with questions or anything that people
0: have. Wonderful. Cody, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I think we covered a lot of ground, but yet we didn't even cover a lot of things. So that will be for (laughs) subsequent conversations. Uh, Really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this, Brett. This was a lot of fun. Thank
0: you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Cody T. Havard of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. And I encourage you to check it out. There's lots of great interviews, as I mentioned. And I also hope you uh, engaged in some good reflection after hearing my thoughts on the selection of Disney legends for this class. So, uh, yeah, you may be disagreeing with me very fervently uh, and I, I I do welcome that thoughtful uh, input if you'd like to uh, engage with me on Twitter um, but certainly you know I, I, I just uh, appreciate productive conversation uh, we are all entitled of course to, to our opinions and you know I'll be really intrigued to see the work that comes out of the, the folks who are named as Disney legends over the coming years, we'll, we'll see if they are totally deserving of that status, um, even if uh, perhaps some of the selections were premature. So, thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at BNachman Reports. That's B N. A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.